0: Uh, So last week, we started our study in ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and we looked at three questions. We looked at why is ecclesiology important, and we looked at uh, who are the people of God, so we saw that God's people are the uh, people who are members of that new covenant that Jesus brings in his blood, and that when we're united to him, we inherit all the promises of God, and we get the gift of the Holy Spirit, we get the full forgiveness of our sins forever, And then lastly, we looked at what is a local church. That was where we left off. And we defined it like this. Uh, It's our working definition of what a local church is. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather together in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. If you weren't able to tune in last week it would be great to go back and to uh if you want to get more information on that definition we walk through it step by step in five parts so you can go back and listen to the last week's there for if you want to double click on any of those things and now we're going to start our next set of three questions and the first question we're going to consider today first question on the outline is what is church membership and what is church discipline so we talked about what a church is now we're going to talk about what it means to be a member of a church and we're going to work with this basic definition and we'll flesh it out more as well. Church membership is a formal covenant relationship between individual Christians and a local church where a church affirms and oversees the Christian's discipleship and the Christian submits living their Christian life in the context of that church. In other words, church membership is about the church taking responsibility for the individual Christian and for the individual Christian taking responsibility for the church submitting ourselves to it and and availing ourselves of it as well and at first glance you might be tempted to think that church membership isn't in the bible lots of people have made that claim but even though you won't find the phrase church membership in scripture once you know where to look church membership really pops up all across the new testament so you see in matthew 18 a passage we looked at last week that jesus assumes that there's an identifiable body of believers that someone can either be brought into, or in the case of Matthew 18, if the person persists in sin, seen out of by the will of the majority, and that idea fits the pattern biblically of what we've seen with there being an inside and an outside of God's people. So God's people uh, is exclusive in the sense that there are always there's always an inside of that people and an outside. So you think of either in the garden with Adam and Eve or outside the garden in the fellowship of israel in the land or not uh, and we have that same expectation in the church where there is an identifiable body of believers that you're either in or you're you're out of paul will say what business have i with those outside of the church again hinting that there is an inside the church a membership uh, second membership is assumed in the one another commands of scripture you know it would be really really hard to measure if we're being obedient to those commands. If we don't have a particular set of people that we're responsible to exercise with them with, you know, how do we know that we are loving one another if we don't know exactly who we are to love? But what is that group of people that biblically I'm commanded to do these one another's with? And the answer is the church. And it's assumed in those uh, commands that there is that group, that body of believers that we're covenanted together with. The Bible teaches uh, church, membership, uh, church membership rather through the metaphors. That, that Paul and other writers will use to explain the church. So he'll call the church a body or a family or a temple, as we thought about last week. We see that the church is comprised of individuals, right, through personal faith and repentance in Christ, but gathered together by God to form a whole, to form a people. You know, we could go on. There are lots of other ways that we see church membership in the scriptures, but suffice it to say, church membership is a biblical idea And therefore, is the duty, the responsibility of every single believer in Christ. If we're not members of churches, then we stand in obedience to God's plan for our discipleship. We stand uh, at odds with God's very desires for us to live our Christian lives in the context of a church. Church membership, to go back to the embassy language that we used last week, is like our passport. Our membership in a local church signifies our membership as a member of God's kingdom, as a participant in that new covenant that we talked about with Christ bringing it uh, in his blood. We submit to the authority of Christ by submitting ourselves to an embassy of God's kingdom, an outpost of the kingdom of God called a local church. Again, you want more on church as embassy, that metaphor, you can look at the book Um, church membership by Jonathan Lehman, or you can go back to last week's where we explain that more in that third section, what is a local church. Now, when our church brings someone into membership, it's like we're saying to the world, based on the evidence of their life, we believe that this person has been saved, and we believe that this person is, and we are putting them out as official representative of Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at this person. So that's why we have a membership process. That's why we want to be careful in how we practice membership. It's possible to have membership in theory, but then to deny it by the way that we practice it, to denigrate it, to make it where it is just uh, an institution, but doesn't have uh, anything to it, anything underneath it. Uh, we are trying to discern in that process, the best that we're able to, obviously, that a person, that the person asking to join the church has truly been born again. We need to know that they understand and rightly confess the true gospel. We're trying to discern uh, if they have themselves been transformed by that gospel and are committed to living by its power. If we are convinced that the evidence of their claim matches that claim, if their profession of faith is valid, is affirmable, then we bring them into membership. Now, the way that we bring someone into membership can change based on whether or not they've been baptized or not meaning that if someone has just been converted and they want to join the church which is sort of step one of obedience in the christian life that person would need to be baptized if they haven't been and only then brought into membership because baptism is how the believer uh declares their allegiance to christ and how the church sets apart someone as a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven it's how in that sense we pass out the passports uh, it's us as a church saying, this one is one of ours. This one is one of God's. Of course, if someone has already been baptized and wants to join the church, and uh, then, again, we believe baptized as a believer, as Baptist, then of course we don't need to be baptized again. There's no really way to be re-baptized. If you're baptized in a, in a manner that uh, was valid, uh, with the gospel present as a believer, uh, then that passes, obviously, in whatever a church That you go to but that baptism is required for church membership and for taking the lord's supper Uh, because again that's how god has given us that's the the tools god has given us to mark out god's people and in a similar vein the lord's supper is how the church continues to affirm our profession of faith so if baptism initially affirms our profession of faith and, and causes us to go public saying we belong to God and the church saying, yes, that person belongs to God, then the Lord's Supper is how the church continues to renew uh, its uh, its affirmation of our profession of faith. And and we renew our vows to the church and the church renews its vows to us as we take the bread and the the juice, in our case, together. So baptism, again, is the initiating sign of the new covenant, how We enter into the visible people of God. And the Lord's Supper is the renewing sign of the new covenant, how we're continually affirmed as one of God's people so that uh, whenever we are taking the Lord's Supper, we're not doing something as individuals uh, only as much as we are doing something together. We are looking at one another and saying, hey, brother, hey, sister, we are giving you these elements because we have every reason to believe that according to your profession of faith you are still walking with the lord and have reason to be assured and anticipate his coming with joy which is obviously a really really sweet source of assurance as we do this with one another uh, whenever we don't feel in ourselves that that we really are converted sometimes we're just confused and uh, we don't see how someone as sinful as us could have interest in christ and and we say to one another through giving the lord's supper hey obviously none of us are perfect that's not the condition it's repentance right if you're a repenting sinner you're welcome at this table you're welcome at the table of the lord so we exercise the keys of the kingdom by partaking of these ordinances because really these ordinances create the reality that is church membership these two ordinances are those authority structures that we use that we've been given to use by god to declare these are god's people so next time that we take the lord's supper uh, which we don't, I don't know how that works out CDC-wise, but, but take time to look around and to see the work of God on display. Everyone taking the Lord's Supper in our church should be those who have had their sins forgiven, who will spend eternity with God. Look and see how wonderful the power of the gospel really is and how it takes effect in, in the worst of sinners' lives, like all of us are. Uh, and of course, obviously, this means that we need to take care only to baptize and give the Lord's Supper to those that the church has recognized and affirmed as having been converted. Now our church practice is what's called the close communion, such that if you are a baptized believer of a, a local church that preaches the same gospel that we do, you'll hear Brad use that verbiage. Then it's like we accept that church's affirmation of said person, and they can take the Lord's Supper with us if they're, if they're visiting, as opposed to open communion, anyone can take it. Uh, or at least anyone, probably most of the time, that's anyone who is a believer, or closed communion, which is only the members of the church can take it. Uh, Baptists have historically been either close like we are or closed, uh, only with John Bunyan being the exception, uh, really, Uh, and maybe in a modern day example, John Piper of an open uh, communion position, but that's neither here nor there for this time. Um, In all of this, We have to remember that church membership is more than an institution. It's more than the names on a roll. Joining a church creates a new reality. We partake in a whole new web of covenant relationships. The church and the individual lock hands, as it were, making promises to one another, almost like a marriage covenant, right? The church and the individual commit themselves to each other. Uh, On the condition of, yes, those promises and those benefits and those responsibilities that come with being a member of the church and only come with being a member of the church, which is one reason that we restrict serving in the church, for example, to those who have committed themselves in membership. In that sense, we don't want them to be able to play married uh, whenever they haven't actually signed on the dotted line. Uh, The kind of relationships formed when we join the church are objective. So that means that they aren't subject to the whims of emotion or convenience. We don't just really, really like each other, so we're going to decide to be nice to one another and help each other along the way. Happily, we're stuck with each other for the glory of God, every single one of us, so that my connection to you as a fellow church member isn't based on our common interests. It's not based on the fact that we're in a similar season of life. We are united in a bond that can't be broken. We're united in membership around that same gospel. We are in covenant with each other. I'm responsible for you and you're responsible for me, even if we have never met. Even if this is the first time you've seen my face, I'm responsible for you spiritually and you're responsible for me as well. And that, again, interconnected web of, of relationships is really what makes the local church and what helps us to grow into maturity. Think about it this way. We have a unique responsibility for one another. Even if we haven't met even more of a responsibility, spiritually speaking, uh, over one another than we do our friends and our family that who are not, let's start this over again. Okay, we have a unique responsibility for one another, even if we haven't met more so than we do our friends and family who aren't members of UBC. So church membership gives us, in this sense, a new Christian identity. It's great to have friends from other churches. It's obviously great to have family members. Um, But spiritually speaking and authority-wise, we possess an authority over one another's lives uh, spiritually that uh, people that we are really close with but that aren't locked together with us in covenant don't have. Uh, The church and its membership gives us the right to speak into each other's lives in love and in grace, regardless of what ABF, what life group, what season of life, social strata, or et cetera that you might find yourself in. You know, obviously when you want to use discretion, we want to get to know each other personally. Uh, That's why it's a good idea to have lots of different people in your homes from different life stages and different backgrounds, socioeconomic, uh, ethnic, et cetera. Uh, But the point that I want us to take away is that we all have a vested interest in the well-being of the whole church, not just the pockets of the church that we tend to associate with most regularly, either just by natural friendship or by our Sunday school classes, uh, so on and so forth. We want to cross the barriers that our culture generally puts up with age, with, uh, again, socioeconomic status, with season of life, so on and so forth. We want to cross those with these membership discipling relationships uh, because that reveals the gospel's power to unite Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, uh, black and white, so on and so forth. Um, And the way that we, we exercise this care for one another is by discipling one another. It's by discipling one another, a word that's used a ton, but I think oftentimes actually misunderstood. You know, discipling is much simpler than we usually give it credit for. It's a whole lot easier than we normally make it. Uh, Pastor uh, Mark Dever has a really helpful definition. Uh, You can also go back. I was eating uh, dinner with old Cliff Hughes uh, this week and was reminded of his and Wes's ABF over last summer on discipling. You could go and get lots of good information on this topic by going back and listening to that. That's Cliff Hughes, Wes Burgess, Discipling ABF. But he says that discipling is just doing spiritual good to another Christian, to another church member. It's as easy as that. It doesn't have to be any harder. Discipleship doesn't have to only take the shape of a mentoring relationship where the older teaches the younger, even though that's good and right and biblical. So like, uh, for instance, uh, a college guy, it's great if he has uh, an older man to be able to meet with. Uh, We need that kind of those kind of relationships. It's also great for that same college student to meet with fellow college students or to meet with a high school student that's joined our church or to meet with uh, someone who's just graduated from college. Uh, You get the point. We want to have a large cross section of the church involved in our daily lives. And and the, the idea is that discipling is a two way street. Uh, insofar as the older need the younger and the younger need the older. There doesn't always have to be a disparity in age or a Christian maturity in those relationships because we all need people's help. We all need to be encouraged in scripture. We all need to be corrected. And so we wanna open our lives to one another such that whenever we meet up, we have spiritual, intentional conversations about what the Lord's doing in our lives, things that we're struggling with and the hope that we have In the gospel. When you think about it, our discipler, our mentor, is actually the whole church. It's the whole church's responsibility to disciple us, and it's our responsibility as a whole church to see that our members are growing in grace. We need that input from all kinds of people to be rounded into the form that God would have for us to become well-rounded. And understanding discipleship this way should free us from the anxiety that, you know, we aren't equipped to disciple someone. I don't know how, I don't know what I'm doing. Well, really all you need to be, uh, to be a or to disciple someone else is to yourself, be a believer, to know the Lord and to love someone and, and to be uh, committed to, to meet up with them and, or talk to them at a service and think with them about God's truth and, and how it applies to your lives. It's really as simple as that. Opening the scriptures, opening a good Christian book, just saying an encouraging word. We disciple one another as we sing to one another, encouraging one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Brad and other people that teach us on a regular basis, uh, they disciple us through that public teaching, which is really the main discipling program, so uh, so to speak. Uh, Church membership is an interconnected web of Christians committing to help each other follow Christ through encouragement and also rebuke. We need both. In that sense, we are all our brother and sister's keepers. Our spiritual lives become bound into each other, right? They become one. We share in each other's griefs. We share in each other's joys because the joys and the griefs of our fellow members, our brothers and sisters, become our griefs. They become our joys. Together, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we behold God's glory with one another and are transformed into the same image, he says. That's what church membership is all about. Growing together, helping one another glorify God in our lives, providing God a vibrant gospel witness here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And we do that through church membership. Now, what about church discipline? When we usually think about church discipline, we think about excommunication, that kind of final step we find in Matthew 18 where someone is removed officially from the membership of the church. And strictly speaking, Church membership actually refers to our whole lives lived under the authority of the local church. So it's much more broad. Now, authority has become uh, effectively a four-letter word in our Christian vocabulary. It's true that authority used improperly damages people, and it dishonors God. But authority is a gift from God. And when used in a God-honoring way, it actually allows us to flourish as the Lord would have us. When we submit to good authority, then we are enabled to grow and to be established in the way that we need to be. In discipline, even whenever it hurts, we know it's a gracious gift because it makes us more like Jesus. That kind of resistance that we feel whenever a sin of ours is pointed out, or when we realize that we need to to start to put on a new activity in our pursuit of godliness, even though it hurts, that kind of resistance build stronger muscles and we help one another to build those those muscles now let's zoom out and again think about church discipline more broadly we'll do that by uh, thinking through a different couple of different categories so church discipline is both formative and corrective so you have formative church discipline and corrective church discipline and in the future you don't have to think oh someone am I getting formatively church discipline or am I getting correctively church discipline? This is just uh, some, some handles to be able to think about things. Um, another way to put it would be to say that discipline refers positively to our learning what's good and what's wise. And then also negatively to our learning what is sinful and unwise church discipline is occurring. For instance, when we hear a sermon and we learn that God never changes, never thought about that before. And that's a reason that we can trust it. Uh, our thoughts about God are being formed in a biblical way. Our understanding of who God is is being shaped in a positive direction. It's growing. And a church discipline also occurs in a corrective sense when we hear a sermon about greed. And we're convicted because we think, wow, I rarely, if ever, give to the church. Uh, I'm not a generous giver. And that sinful tendency to greed is being exposed. And we're realizing more and more what it looks like to walk with God and to trust him and to obey him in the area of our finances. The Christian life really is learning what pleases God and what doesn't. And we need one another to be able to do that work because we have blind spots. Uh, In a church covenant, in a church that I was a member at formerly, they had this line that was at first super weird because I didn't know what it meant because my vocabulary is not that advanced. Uh, but they had a, a line where we would say to one another that we would help each other walk circumspectly, circumspectfully. Uh, and I was like, "What in the world does that mean?" Well, it really means that the church and its discipline helps us to be able to see all around ourselves because we're blind in so many ways to our worst faults. Sometimes we baptize them as uh, as virtues. We're not cantankerous. We're just uh, zealous for the truth. Uh, you know, we're, um, we're not, uh, uh, we don't participate in like a, in, what am I trying to say? Pity, right? Self-pity, uh, but we're meek, uh, that kind of thing. And the church helps us to uh, see our blind spots, to point them out, and so that uh, we can grow uh, more into the image of Christ. So church discipline, formative and corrective, we need both. Church discipline is also informal and formal. So let's think about an informal church discipline. This is the kind of discipline that takes place in the normal warp and woof of the Christian life uh, and the church's life together. So an example of of the informal formative discipline might be a young father learning from the example of an older father with his children, seeing, hey, uh, whenever the child responds in anger this way, I saw that dad do this and respond with kindness. uh, And I want to do that going forward as well. Another example uh, would be of informal corrective discipline. Uh, Say a member notices that another member spoke harshly with her roommate. And then that member, that witness that takes the offending member of the church uh, aside for maybe coffee and and reminds her that we should be kind as Christians and that she should repent and apologize to her roommate. Uh, Remember that the work of church discipline is ordinary Christian discipleship such that our right to speak to one another honestly and frankly in love comes from our status as members of the same church. We want to show grace. We want to show love. And in doing this, we're used by God to shape one another into his likeness. We are instruments in the Redeemer's hands, as the book says. Um, Now, again, we normally associate church discipline with excommunication, and that's an act of formal corrective church discipline. What makes the act of discipline formal is that it's an act of the whole church. It's us officially using the keys of the kingdom Jesus has given us to remove the church's affirmation of someone's profession of faith. It's like we're revoking their passport. We're taking back the team jersey. If church membership says, based on the evidence of this person's life, we're going to hold this person out as someone who's been saved and an official representative of King Jesus, church discipline is saying, based on the evidence of their life, we are no longer able to hold this person out as someone who has been saved and who and should not be considered an official representative of King Jesus. Uh, the church is called to remove someone from membership who claims the name of Christ but is in an open and unrepentant sin. Basically, discipline in this sense, in this formal sense, should happen when the church is no longer, with confidence, able to say we think this person belongs to God. Church membership affirm someone's profession of faith church discipline walks back that affirmation takes it away and says we cannot put this person out as someone who represents god and we can't give this person the assurance that membership lends uh, because we don't want them to be deceived about their spiritual state in that sense uh, church discipline is supposed to in this final formal sense it's supposed to be a shock to the system of the christian to have them repent and to return um, it's important to keep in mind that we are not saying we know 100% that this person is going to be consigned to hell. So it's not excommunication in the Roman Catholic sense. But we are saying that we're making a judgment based on the evidence of their life. Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. And Jesus gives us the authority in Matthew 16 and 18 to make judgments based on that fruit. Uh, we should, we're saying that they should have no reason to believe they aren't going to hell because they're living a life contrary to their profession of faith. It's almost like we're putting a warning sign as they're going over a cliff. Stop now, stop now, stop now. Um, and, uh, and that's what we're doing whenever we, we discipline someone in that formal final sense. If they repent, praise God, they should be welcomed back. And whenever we are able by the evidence of their lives to say, uh, this person does seem to now be walking according to their claim to know Jesus, we can bring them back in, uh, bar a couple of examples with maybe uh, child sex abuse or something like that. Uh, church membership shows love for one being removed because, again, we are caring for them spiritually by not lying to them. Um, and we're also loving the, our neighbors around us because we're not confusing them as to what it means to belong to God, not confusing them as what the gospel is, And ultimately, church discipline is for the reputation and for the glory of God, because we as a church have had God's name placed on us, and we want our members to reflect his character accurately. And so we remove those who no longer do, and we only see in those uh, that do give evidence of having been born again, members of that new covenant. Now, let's pause just a second and 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 ask for any questions uh go ahead and throw them on the chat um since there are so many of us um asking questions uh verbally would probably just become honestly a mess uh throw them on the chat again on that handout you can find my information you can find chris's information and you can contact us through the week Um, you can also contact steven or any of the other elders with questions um, or concerns of any kind or how this applies to our church or what things that we do to uh, to support these. Um, yeah, Scott Rainer, Uh What's the basis or reason that some gospel preaching churches don't have church membership? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think charitably, some people just don't think that it is biblical. So the reasons I gave, they don't find I'm persuasive. Uh, you know, obviously, it, there's no Bible verse that says thou shalt join a church. Uh, but there's also no, ex- there's no one passage in scripture that says, God is one being who eternally subsists in three persons, right? The word Trinity is not strictly speaking, it doesn't show up in the original Greek. So I think some people just don't think that it's um don't think that it's biblical. I think sometimes it's tied to our uh, the teaching over the last hundred years or so that you can have Christ as your savior, but not as your Lord. Because really we we don't we don't really have any way to measure our Uh, submission to God's authority if we don't submit ourselves practically uh, to the authority of of the local church so that we can say you can be a Christian, but you don't actually have to commit to God or his people in any substantial way. Um, You know, we have a real anti-authority streak in our uh, in our cultural milieu today. We have a really anti-authority streak, let's be honest, in our hearts. Adam rebelled against the authority of God and wanted to claim it for himself. So I think that we just naturally want to buck this, what we perceive as strictures, as things keeping us uh, from from enjoying a life and from living uh, with God uh, in yeah, and we, we misunderstand what authority is and its goodness and, uh, and the way that God would have us live uh, together. So those are some of the reasons. Um, I don't think that most people are consciously just, I don't want any authority over me. And so I'm not going to think church membership's a thing. Um, I think maybe subconsciously, but I think uh, there are lots of reasons. Um, and I know lots of us were probably members of churches growing up that had membership, technically speaking, like they had names on a roll, they had a directory, but that the, the sort of things culturally that we were talking about as far as loving one another, discipling one another, those things weren't present. Uh, that's a great question. Let's go ahead and move on. If you do have questions, keep throwing them in the chat. I'll try to get to them uh, in a bit, but we do need to keep going. Um, the second question of the day, how is a church supposed to be structured and governed? We're getting into polity talk. What form, I'm going to ask you a question. I don't know if your civics teacher was good. Mine was not. Sorry, Miss dial. Uh, what form of government do you think that the church is most like? Again, uh, you, you could type your answer in a chat. Don't feel compelled to. Totally a rhetorical question. The answer may surprise you. Congregational churches like ours have been accused of adopting American democracy and baptizing it and running our churches based on it. We won't get into a history lesson about how, obviously, first it started in the Middle East and the New Testament, uh, and then also in England before us. But um, is our church a democracy? Let's take it on. Uh, John Cotton, who was a 17th century Puritan, moved from Boston, England to Boston, Massachusetts in 1633. See, I am really a nerd. Uh, And he said it's best to think of the church as a mixed government. So first, all Christians should affirm that the church is a monarchy. A church is a monarchy not by the Pope, not by a bishop, right? Not by a single pastor, but by Jesus Christ. We have one king who rules over the church. All church authority belongs to him. Second, the church does resemble an oligarchy or a group governed by a small group of individuals because our elders do have a real authority that God calls us to submit to. Their authority doesn't come from us. It's not like a representative democracy. We don't elect them to represent our interests. God is the one that gifts elders to the church, and we recognize them by voting them, but we don't create them. Uh, it's true that the church resembles a democracy also because final authority on matters of doctrine, membership, discipline, and leadership belongs to the gathered congregation. It resides with the people that make up the church. And each aspect of, this, uh, of the Bible's prescribed polity that we just discussed is necessary for church health so that if you get the balance off or if you neglect one or neglect another, then things get thrown out of whack. Uh, another way to put it, and this is how we'll think about it in this section, is to say that a biblical church is congregationally ruled, elder led, and then deacon served. Congregationally ruled, elder led, and deacon served. Now let's take each one of those uh, three one by one. The church should be congregationally ruled. We are a congregational church. We read last week in Matthew 18 that final authority in the church lies, with, lies where? Uh, with the church, with the congregation, with the ecclesia. So that means the church, the members, not the elders or not the body, a body or a person outside the local church, like a presbytery or a bishop, hold and exercise the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom belong to the church, along with the elders, of course, because the elders are, after all, members of our church. Uh, now, where else do we find congregationalism in the Bible? Again, all over. Uh, The the Bible gives the congregation two main duties or in ways that we can see the the church, the uh, congregation, taking responsibility to exercise the keys of the kingdom. Protecting the gospel is one, and protecting the church membership is the second. Or we could say that the church's responsibility is to protect the who of the gospel, who belongs to the gospel, and the what of the gospel, what the true gospel actually is. So we see in Galatians one, Paul says it's the responsibility of the church. Uh, okay, yes, ma'am, Vicky. Uh, Paul says it is the responsibility of the church to remove someone from their number who teaches a false gospel. Uh, so this presumes that the congregation knows the gospel well and are aware of their responsibility to protect it. He says that even if a he or an angel comes to them preaching a the gospel contrary to what they received from the church, that they should. Uh, that would, that they received, the church should reject such teaching and remove them. Uh, if our elders, God forbid, ever stepped out of line and began preaching a false gospel, it's our responsibility to remove them from the church as an act of formal church discipline. God holds the assembly, the church, responsible for the church's doctrine. And, and, and Vicki will think she, uh, uh, Vicki said, uh, addressed the, the verse where it says, let rulers rule over you. Um, we're going to think about how elder authority and church authority go together, but you can see here how obviously that command is not absolute because there is the authority that the Bible gives the congregation that the Bible doesn't give the elders or those who rule over us, uh, who lead us, because the church has to have that that way of removing bad leadership. And that's exactly uh, what uh, what the Bible gives to the congregation. But we'll think about how the two uh, mesh together because they are friends. They're not foes, uh, elder authority and congregational authority. The Bible assumes also that the congregation is responsible for its own membership, responsible to make sure that we only bring into membership those who give a credible profession of faith and to remove those who no longer do, like we thought about. 1 Corinthians 5 is a clear example here. You know, Paul calls... Uh, FBCC, First Baptist Church of Corinth, to remove the man who is living in sexual immorality because he was living contrary to his claim to follow Christ. He said he takes the name brother, but he's acting like he's a child of the devil. Paul doesn't tell them to have the elders, their leaders, to take care of the problem. He says when you are assembled, when you are gathered in the name of the Lord, remove this man from your number. The congregation is the one responsible to... To uh, to vote this man in in the first place to exercise the keys of the kingdom uh, and because originally they thought he gave evidence of being born again and now that the man is opening uh, walking in open unrepentant sin it's the congregation's duty as a whole to vote to remove the church's affirmation of his profession of faith now you may be asking where in the world do we see anything like voting in the Bible Second Corinthians two six where Paul seems to be referring to the same man. He actually appears to have repented, praise God, for the work of the Spirit in that brother's life. He reminds the congregation that since the man has turned away from his sin and appears to be walking in the light once more, they should let him back into the church, saying, here's the key verse, that the punishment by the majority is enough, that they no longer need to inflict the man uh, because he's already been removed by an act of church discipline. The punishment by the majority, the plenum, is enough. Corinth obviously had some way of discerning the will of the majority concerning this man in his, in his situation. They acted in some way. It might not have been exactly the way that we tally votes, uh, but in some way to, uh, to vote him out, to remove him, to discern what the congregation wanted to do, given the evidence. Uh, and now they had the joy of voting him back in. Congregationalism means that church members have a job to do. Since we are all responsible for the protection and for the promotion of the gospel, it's important for us all to know our statement of faith and to understand what true conversion looks like, because we are ultimately the ones responsible for the ministry of UBC. We go back to Ephesians 4, where Paul says that elders and pastors equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not do the work of the ministry, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, equip us uh, to exercise the keys of the kingdom. Uh, you can see why congregationalism then only works when the church is made up of believers only. Because having non believers with the God given authority to vote and sway the church's official stance on the gospel or the church's affirmation or denial of what constitutes genuine saving faith is disastrous. Uh, we want people that we bring into membership to give sufficient evidence of conversion. And so we need to be aware of and, and help those who are in open, unrepentant sin by calling them to repentance and removing them if need be, if they refuse to repent. We need to make sure that we are all ourselves growing in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and helping others to do the same because all of this work belongs to the whole church. It's our job. Now, let's close this section with an illustration to drive home how congregationalism facilitates the kind of discipleship that characterizes a healthy church culture. So imagine with me two exercise classes. The first class has a dynamic leader who is so good at exercising that they just get up, they do all the exercise themselves, maybe flex one time, and then they send the class home. Now, imagine a second class. This class is led by a dynamic leader who is so good at exercising that they demonstrate the exercises with precision. And then they walk around the room helping the class perform the exercises just like he just did which exercise class do you think will be in the best shape after six months of course it's the second class the first class is like a church whose structure uh, gives elders that final authority for the ministry of the church such that the congregation really just relies on them ultimately to do everything for them the second class is like our church an elder led congregational church where our elders are exemplary and they lead and they equip us to exercise the keys of the kingdom together as a whole congregation. So the church should be congregationally ruled. It's the teaching of Jesus. It's the teaching of Paul. It's the teaching of Baptists from as long as there have been Baptists uh, and even some uh, congregationalist big seed starting in England at the end of the 17th century. Um, this has been consistent Baptist practice, this idea of congregationalism. Now we'll see it's an elder led congregationalism because some have taken congregationalism to mean pure democracy where the church votes on what carpets we have on, if we buy Xerox copier and so on and so forth. But we want put, to put forward a, a more robust understanding of a congregationalism that is elder led. So congregationally ruled now, elder led That. Final authority is given to the whole church. So how do elders fit into the equation? Now, before we get going too far, let's define what an elder is. An elder is a pastor, is a bishop, so on and so forth, all the same New Testament word. It's a qualified man set aside by the congregation to lead the church, to rule in that sense, uh, through their teaching and their example, to shepherd the flock of God that's among them. The Bible clearly states that the elders of a local church have authority that must be obeyed or else we're in sin before God. You can see Hebrews 13, 7 or uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 and, and following. And, and some will try to pit this congregational authority that we talked about with this elder authority, saying that the two can't exist. Either the elders have authority or the congregation has authority, and that's the end of the story. But we know that authority isn't one kind of thing. Right? We all know what it's like to live under several different types of authority at once, and they, and they don't uh, negate one another. They operate within their appropriate sphere. So, uh, the parent, the police, and the president all have a different but legitimate authority in our lives. So, the elders have a type of authority, and the congregation has another type of authority that go together and actually are the perfect equation for church health. So, how do these two legitimate God-given authorities fit together? Well, first, to understand that, we need to clarify a few things about elder authority. So elder authority is a God-given authority, meaning even though the congregation is responsible to affirm our own leaders, we don't give them that authority. So the congregation recognizes those that the Lord gives to the church as gifts for our good. So the elders aren't like elected officials that we put in power to represent our interests. They're not a board of governors. Uh, they work for God on our behalf to lead us to maturity in Christ. They represent his interests, right? Uh, elders exercise that authority through teaching and through shepherding, by praying and by being example to the flock. These are the basic qualifications of the elders we find in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, to be above reproach uh, and to be able to teach, to be able to uh, to lead through the exposition of the scriptures, not just from the pulpit, but informally in ABF situations and in one-on-one discipleship, and so on and so forth. Uh, pastors, which again are the same thing as elders in the New Testament, so that we have uh, how many pastors we have? They're all pastors, right? Uh, we have Brad as a sort of first among equals, uh, main teaching pastor, senior pastor, lead pastor, as uh, as we style it. But strictly speaking, they all have the same amount of authority. Uh, They all have equal votes around the elder table Um, and they take the lead in teaching the gospel, for example, Uh, conducting member interviews, for example, and recommending people for excommunication. They lead us in the use of the keys of the kingdom. So they help us to exercise them in a way that's in accordance with scripture. They shape us into the kind of people that use the keys correctly, that act and make decisions that honor God. So let's put it all together. Elder authority is an authority of counsel. It's an authority of counsel, meaning elders do not have final decision-making authority in those matters of membership, discipline, doctrine, and leadership so that they can't decide unilaterally to bring someone into membership or they can't decide just to change our statement of faith. Instead, their authority looks more like, like wooing, like teaching, like shaping, uh, through their conscience-binding teaching, elders shape us into the kind of people God would have us to be so that we, we heed their scriptural teaching. We heed their it's advice on these matters as God shapes us into the people that we should be. And the congregation's authority is different. It's the authority of command. It's that final authority where the church does have the authority to bring someone into membership or to change our statement of faith. And put together, these two authorities make healthy, mature congregations. The whole church possesses the keys of the kingdom, and the elders lead us in the use of those keys. They are exemplary Christians, Christians given uh, gifts and authority by God to lead us uh, to do the things that God would have us to do. Uh, And whenever we think about our relationship to our elders, we want it to be a relationship that defaults to submission and trust. Right. We want uh, to want to trust our elders and accept their leadership and be shaped by them. Uh, Normally, the congregation should default to trusting the recommendations that our pastors bring and affirming their decisions. You know, if we can't trust our elders consistently, then we need to get new elders that we can trust and obey. And if we find ourselves always having a hard time trusting elders and trusting authorities over us, then the problem probably resides in our own hearts. Not in the elders themselves. You know, congregationalism is not an elaborate set of checks and balances, right? These authorities aren't meant to necessarily cancel each other out. Uh, congregationalism doesn't mean that we hold our elders in check or need to keep them honest or or hold them in suspicion. Uh, we don't have to, our elders shouldn't have to earn our trust. Whenever we install someone as an elder, they should have our trust as one of our leaders. God's given us. Um, obviously, if they go contrary to Scripture then we're duty-bound not to listen to them, right? But uh, insofar as they're being faithful to the word of God and and are walking in godliness themselves, then we should submit to them. That's what the Bible calls us to. You know, we should only go against our elders if they are in clear violation of the scriptures, kind of like an emergency brake to stop a runaway car. You want to be really careful uh, of whenever you pull that and say, no, we're not going to do that. So yes votes to faithful leaderships aren't a rubber stamp. Uh, We don't have to make them earn it in that sense. Yes, votes normally signify good leadership uh, a a godly group of men that consistently lead us to do things that are god-honored and it also signals uh, mature congregationalism because to lead and exercise authority so oftentimes is to submit Uh, you can't uh, you can't lead unless you will submit Uh, so we don't have to worry about oh well we're just telling we're just saying yes to everything they say because praise god what they're saying to us our elders consistently is something that is good and right and biblical uh, and is uh, as is helping us to exercise the keys of the kingdom in a way that honors god so congregation should be congregationally ruled elder led in the use of those uh, of that of the congregation's authority and finally deacons serve deacons serve you know so often the deacons are the unsung heroes and they get like a paragraph and and two sentences so Praise God for deacons continuing to go on uh, laboring in relative obscurity, but the, uh, the outline uh, called for a short paragraph here. But don't get it twisted. Deacons are absolutely essential to a church health. Uh, Acts 6, 1 through 6, provides an idea, sort of a, a prototype of what deacons uh, will come to do or are supposed to do. And really, they're effectively table servants selected to help and provide uh, facilitate the day-to-day practical needs for the church, so that in this case the apostles and in our case the elders are able to devote themselves to the word, the ministry of the word, and prayer. Biblically, the qualifications for deacons look a lot like the qualifications for eldership, except deacons don't have to be able to teach God's word, and moreover, deacons don't possess any spiritual authority. Uh, certainly not like elders do. Nowhere in the Bible are we called to submit to our deacons. Uh, our deacons are people set aside that are godly, that hold uh, the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, who help and facilitate things like nursery, things like parking, things like soundboard. Uh, because those things, though they are not central to the ministry of the church, help the ministry of the church run, right? Uh, microphones that are good are a tremendous gift to the church because it doesn't cause an unnecessary distraction uh, from, uh, in, our, in our meetings together. Right, Someone that uh, coordinates parking, uh, like uh, I believe Jeff and Scott off the top of my head, and greeting, it helps to, to smooth over areas where there might be tension with people parking poorly or people uh, doing this, that, or the other. Deacons serve as shock absorbers and are those that can smooth over situations so that you actually don't see a lot of their work because they are doing such good work. Uh, because they uh, make things seamless in that sense, so that we can focus on uh, the main things. You know, in our church tradition, uh, churches have oftentimes, and by oftentimes, in our tradition, I mean in the last 150 years only, uh, churches treat their deacons like elders. So they organize them on a board, and they have that kind of decision-making authority uh, and leadership authority, but that would be to confuse the two offices. Historically, as Baptists had their roots, they had those two offices, the, the elders, the pastors who lead and who teach, and the deacons who facilitate these, these practical needs. And they are absolutely necessary, uh, because if not, uh, there'd be so much coordination and so many bumps and bruises and fissures that would threaten to divide us, because we can divide and get upset about what seem like really trivial things really quickly. So praise God for our deacons who do such a great job, uh, and we'll get to the Lord willing to affirm some more uh, for another term this evening. So that's how a church is supposed to be structured and governed. I need to go on. Shoot any questions. Uh, continue to. We might not get to them during this particular thing because I am running out of time. So let's think finally, just one page, to promise, about what the church's mission is. So we've thought about what a church is ad nauseum, right? Uh, let's think for a moment about what a church does. And it's really, really important. It's absolutely uh, planned that we talk about what a church is before what a church does. Uh, when we def- try to define a church by its mission, then we can go astray. But there are lots of things that vie for the local church's attention. And it's important that we distinguish about uh, between what churches can do and what churches must do. So biblically, I think we see one golden mission that Christ gives to the church, that great commission of making disciples of all nations we find in Matthew 28. So we'll want to direct our time, our efforts, our resources to those things that are most connected to discipleship, to evangelism, to world missions. And that being said, there are other good things that we might use our resources for as a church, and there are certainly a whole host of things that are wonderful and sometimes absolutely necessary for individual Christians to give themselves to. So just because it's not the mission of the church— To do X, Y, or Z doesn't mean that Christians can't or shouldn't be concerned about them and address them in our individual lives and individual discipleship as Christians. It just means institutionally we might not put our money, our resources into such things. Uh, The Bible presents church members as a kind of priest-king, so that like in uh, Adam in the Garden, God has given us the responsibility and authority that's, of course, underneath his authority, to maintain his dwelling place, right, keep it pure, keep it holy, and to spread its borders. So Adam was supposed to uh, maintain the garden and then spread the uh, the, the borders of Eden, uh, ultimately, to the whole earth. But of course, he failed big time. But in Christ, we've been given this spiritual duty uh, to keep God's place, the church, pure. And we do that by practicing membership carefully. It all comes back to church membership. Our goal is to have a membership comprised only of those who have repented their sins and trusted in Christ, and it's our responsibility to remove false teachers who want to distort the gospel. It's our responsibility to remove someone who claims the name of Christ but whose life demonstrates no real allegiance to Him, because we are God's uh, authorized representatives on earth, and we want to prevent or present rather a clear witness to the gospel's power and to God's true character. So, part of our mission. Is living together in love and holiness in such a way that reveals the gospel to the watching world. It doesn't obscure it. We want to be pure as our God is pure. Our responsibility to keep the church pure plays out most naturally in those relationships where we help one another follow Christ. We promote the holiness of God's people when we get involved in each other's lives, when we help one another follow Jesus. As we grow together, our church will be a more attractive testimony to the gospel, a sort of uh, plausibility structure uh, to use uh, the phrase from the compelling community. I think Michael Lawrence is actually quoted us saying a uh, 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 kind of a plausibility structure that that bears witness to the reality of God's saving reign in Christ. Now we're also called to work for the advance of God's kingdom through how calling more rebels like we all were to bow their name to King Jesus, to, to, to spread that message that though we have sinned against a holy God and deserve his wrath, God sent his son, Christ, to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, and to rise from the dead so that everyone that repents of their sins and trusts in him enters into this kingdom, becomes a member of God's family. God extends his saving reign as his spirit gives people new life through that gospel and gathers believers into local churches. So as ambassadors of Christ, we make our appeal for people in our spheres of influence to come to him in saving faith personally and corporately, we do evangelism, not just as a duty, but as a joy. There's no more powerful uh, evangelistic tool than the local church, where you bring your non-Christian friends or non-Christian family and see all of these different kinds of people loving one another, giving themselves to each other, because precisely Christ has died and has risen again and has given us his spirit and has united us together. Uh, We get to, as a whole church, call people to experience the highest joy imaginable in Christ. We do mob evangelism where uh, we don't want to just be preoccupied with us being the person that finally seals the deal. So to speak, if you want to use phraseology like that, we want to just be a part of someone's conversion testimony where that person shared the gospel and that person shared the gospel with me. And we are at this person's house. This person shared the gospel. And I heard it from everybody in this church and by God's grace, people uh, will repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Uh, church planting is a way that we can extend our obedience and extend the gospel's influence uh, into other areas, into our own area and to people uh, all over the world. Uh, we want to see more healthy churches in our area so that more people can hear the gospel. right We don't want to be territorial. We all belong to the same kingdom. We might be different embassies and different outposts, right? Um, different manifestation of God's universal church, but we want everywhere that preaches the gospel to flourish. Um, and we want to see that healthy uh, that work, Uh, of healthy churches being established and planted in every corner of the globe so that global missions is most faithful when the church is most central to our strategies. Uh, If you want more on this, check out Mark Devers' little thin book uh, called Understanding the Great Commission. I believe it is on our bookstall and is really helpful thinking about how the church is the center of that Great Commission. That's why we try to have that our missions dollars as a church go to people laboring not only in evangelism, but also local church ministry, like in South Africa or in India. Uh, our church gives time and resources and prayers and even our members, uh, and hopefully increasingly so, to gospel work in other cultures so that God has more and more embassies of his kingdom to display his glorious gospel and to represent him and his rule on earth. And of course, our call to extend the borders of God's kingdom will only happen if God's Spirit blesses the work. Only He gives new life. But the reality is, the triune God is calling people to Himself, and His church is His chosen messenger. So that ecclesiology, helpful, uh, healthy biblical polity, serves the end of God receiving more and more and more glory uh, as, uh, as, uh, as people bow their knee to Christ and are, are gathered into local churches. Now, that is 9.30 on the dot. Uh, if you do have a question, please send it to me or uh, from six feet away in about an hour, you can shout them at me uh, whenever, Lord willing, we meet together. Uh, again, do send me an email, uh, send Chris an email. It's been great to think together about Ecclesiology about the church and I hope that it causes us to love the church even more to serve it with our whole lives uh, Because that's how we live the Christian life That's how we express our devotion to Jesus by being devoted to one another and next week the topic of all topics Eschatology I say that because it tends to produce the most heat um, But I think that uh, as we gather around our statement of faith We're going to see that uh, the centerpiece of of Eschatology is just Christ's triumphant return to gather us and to uh, to take us to live with him forever, which is glorious and which we can all gather around ourselves. Uh, let's pray as we look to go to the service uh, where we picture that end time uh, gathering of all the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you that you give us authority and you give us um, structures to live under to help us grow and flourish as we ought to. Father, we pray that you would give us the humility to Uh, give our lives to uh, other people, to listen to them, to submit to them, uh, to encourage, to rebuke, to have the courage to do so and the boldness. Uh, We pray that you would help us to be shaped into people that love one another with an increasingly supernatural love that is only explained by the power of the gospel. We pray that UBC would continue to be a vibrant gospel witness in Fayetteville and that we would be a part of seeing churches planted, not just in our area, but all across the world uh, that bring honor to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.